Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25, page 965. This is how the birth of Christ, of Jesus Christ, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, Jesus, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The second reading is Galatians 4, which is page 1170. Starting to read at verse 1, page 1170. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the talk today is... um entitled The Greatest Day of Our Lives, which, of course, is a take-that-hit, though what they were singing about, I can't recall. But I chose it as a title because it reminds us that for the Christian, the greatest day in our life is when we switch from being under the law to being in Christ. C.S. Lewis, like many of us, had two conversions. The first was to theism, the simple belief that creation requires a creator. But for him, there then followed a disturbing realisation that he was in the wrong with that creator. His God-given conscience merely condemned him. He needed a conversion to Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century uh, preacher tells the story which illustrates very well how people's ideas of God get distorted by legalistic religion. He recounts the story of a fellow Baptist minister 
who went to the house of an elderly woman to give her the money for her rent as a gift from the church's poor relief fund. He knocked again and again, but failed to get any answer. He discovered later that the lady had been inside all the time. When he asked her to explain why she hadn't answered the door, she replied, Oh, I heard the knocking, but I thought it was the rent man come to evict me for what I owed. Now that is a parable of an ironic misunderstanding that keeps numerous people outside rather than in Christ. You see, we know that we're accountable for our sins. So when we hear God knocking on the door of our hearts, we immediately jump to the conclusion that he's come as the rent man to claim that debt of moral obligation. Instead of opening our lives to him, we feign deafness like the old lady. We shut our ears to the invitation of God's word, convinced that if we respond, he will certainly make us regret it. So a misunderstanding, which is a tragedy. The truth is that he knocks, not as the ruthless rent man demanding payment, but as the generous donor of charity to provide it. It is the Saviour's knock we hear, but we are so ready to think it is the taskmaster's. And it is so sad when a person knows enough about God to fear him, but not enough to love him. But that sadly is the plight that very many people in the world today are in, even some who would profess to be Christians, and yet whose faith suffices only to render them miserable and guilt-ridden. Martin Luther was like that before his conversion to Christ. He was a scrupulously conscientious monk, he would regularly spend hours in prayer at the most awkward times of the days, times of the days which I rarely have encountered. And yet, rather than joy, he tells us that he lived in terror of God. John Wesley was not dissimilar. He was the son of a clergyman, and he went up to Oxford to study to become a clergyman himself. He and others found a very sort of serious, pious club called the Holy Club, which was noted for their method, um, method, methodical, methodical, I was nearly going to say Methodist, but it's methodical spiritual disciplines, where, of course, you can see where uh, Methodism derives its name. And yet John Wesley looked back on those student days from the perspective of his later conversion, and he wrote in his journal, I had then only the faith of a servant, not that of a son. An enormous number of people in this world experience religion as basically a form of bondage. Bondage to guilt, to superstition, to ritual, and most of all, bondage to rules as a burdensome list of do's and don'ts. Such a religion restricts 
and burdens people. As Wesley put it, feeling more like the relationship between a servant and his master rather than between a child and his parent. Now the background to this passage in Galatians 4, 1 to 7 is of course Galatians 3 where Paul surveyed 2,000 years of Old Testament history. And in particular, he showed the relationship between three of the biggest players in that period of biblical history, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. And he explained how God gave Abraham a promise to bless all the families of the earth through those who would be his descendants. And how God then gave Moses the law, which, far from annulling the promise, actually made it more necessary and urgent, and how the, pro the promise was fulfilled in Christ, so that everyone whom the law drives to Christ inherits the promise which God had given to Abraham. And now, in Galatians 4, he rehearses the same history again, but contrasting man's condition under the law, verses 1 to 3, with his condition when he is in Christ, verses 4 to 7. And then he appeals to them not to return to that old way of life, as if they do, they will just enslave themselves again and he will have wasted his time with them, verses 8 to 11. His line of thought is simply this, once you were slaves, now you are sons, don't go back. We'll just concentrate on verses 1 to 8. So our condition under the law, verses 1 to 3, what we might call our age of minority. Now in our society, we have at various ages as we grow up, we are then entitled to do certain things or be held responsible for certain things. So the key age is 18. That's the most significant, because at that age, somebody has reached what you might call the age of majority. There is our age of minority, under 18, the age of majority, over 18. And we can stand for Parliament. We can become an MP. We can serve on a jury. We can make a will. Might not have anything to leave, but we can make one. We can get married without our parents' consent. We can carry a donor card. We can leave our body for medical research, which sounds grand, but is really just permitting a bunch of medical students every Friday afternoon to dissect you over two years. But you do at least get a free funeral at the end of it. And, uh, but you have to wait till you're 21 to be able to adopt a child or to supervise a learner driver. You have to be 23 to be um, a curate in the Church of England, to be ordained. You have to be 30 to be a bishop. But at 16, believe it or not, you can fly a glider, and I mean in the glider, in the sky, not a remote controlled one. That does seem worth looking at, I would imagine, by the government. Now Paul says, that for us to be under the law is like an heir during his childhood, during his age of minority. So let's imagine a boy who is heir to a great estate in the Roman world of his day. One day it is all going to be his. Indeed, it's already his by promise 
but it's not yet in experience because he is not of age. Although that age was normally 14, his late father in his will could have specified any age. And while he is underage during his minority, although he is the lord of the estate by title, in practice he's actually no better off than a slave, verse 1. He has, through the will, been put under guardians and trustees, verse 2. His guardian looked after his upbringing, particularly his education and discipline, while his trustees looked after running his estate. But he was not free. He could not do what he wanted to do. He has to do what they want. In fact, woe betide him if, they, if he didn't do what they wanted. They could be very tough. So in many ways, he's no better off than a household slave. He may be the heir, and so the whole estate will be his one day. But for the time being, while he is still a child, he's no better off than this household slave. And he will remain in this bondage until the date set by his father, verse 2, until he is legally of age. The day he reached that age, though, everything changed. Immediately, his guardian and his trustees could be dismissed by him. The boy now of age was free. The inheritance was his to do as he pleased and to enjoy. It was all his in reality, as well as in law. Paul says something very similar is happening to the world. History, he sees, is divided into two epochs in God's minds. There is the world's spiritual minority, and there is the age of the world's spiritual maturity. And those two epochs are separated by a single day, a kind of coming of age for the human race. There was the age of minority, basically the Old Testament, and the age of majority, basically the New Testament. And in that earlier period, we were children, verse 3, a time when we were under a tutor, as good as slaves under the basic principles of the world, Paul says. Basic principles is a translation of a word, stoichia. And the question is, what are those basic principles? What are those stoichia? Now one meaning is the fundamentals of something, like a child learning the alphabet, the ABC, as Hebrews uh, 5.12 puts it, the elementary truths of God's word. And a second meaning is of the found fundamental constituents of the material universe, the chemical elements, in other words. Remember your periodic tables? I think they've added a few since I was at school. And that comes out in 2 Peter 3.10, as in the elements destroyed by fire at the end. And thirdly, it can mean the fundamental forces of the spiritual world, the fallen angels and the loyal angels. The big question is, in which sense is Paul using it here? 
Well, the most obvious is the first. The idea of learning fits well with the idea of a child growing up under a tutor who, who is his guardian. In uh, chapter 3, 24, 25, Paul compares the function of the Old Testament law to a pedagogue, a trainer, who was responsible for a boy's early education and discipline. If this is linked to chapter 4, then it seems certain that at least one of the stoichia, which Paul says holds the world in bondage during its period of spiritual minority, must be the law. And in fact, in verse 23 of chapter 3, we read, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. And the word stoichia pops up again in verses 8 and 9, where the Galatians are turning back to those weak and miserable principles. But this time, it's not to the Old Testament law, because Paul is speaking directly to the Galatians, who had been pagans, not Jews, before they became Christians. So they're not, they weren't slaves to the law, because they were unaware of it. But to those who by nature are not gods, Paul says, they were enslaved to. So the Christians in Galatia had been trapped in the worship of pagan idols, the basic principles that imprisoned the rest of the human race in the pre-Christian era. Now the implications of that are quite startling. The age of spiritual minority is characterised by bondage for both the Jew and the Gentile. The only difference our cultural background makes is what holds us in bondage. For the Jew, it was religious rules, the law, given as a guardian to provide moral education and to limit an ex the extent of evil, in society arising from our sinful, rebellious natures, becomes a cruel tyrant that holds us in chains of guilt and condemnation. We cannot get out of it. For the Gentiles, it is pagan philosophy and religion. Their God-given spiritual instincts generate a metaphysical speculation, in a sense rather like the role of the Old Testament law. In other words, they tried to work out the meaning of life and how to live themselves. Because, you see, human beings are wired up to ask questions regarding the ultimate meaning to life. And then they tend to devise religions for themselves because they possess an innate awareness of God and they're puzzled as to why they're here. But just as our human sinfulness turns God-given law into legalistic bondage for the Jews, so it turns God-given human spirituality into bondage of idolatry for the Gentiles. So this earlier period of human history was characterised by slavery, 
slavery to the fundamental components of the old order of things, the stoichia of the fallen world. For the Jews, the law. For the Gentiles, pagan gods and philosophy. The precise identity of our jailer depends on how and where we were brought up. But whether we were brought up Jew or Gentile, enslaved we are. Now in saying this, Paul completely undermines the elitist pretensions of these Judaizers who had arrived in Galatia from uh, Judea and Jerusalem. They wanted to believe that Jews were superior to Gentiles, but Paul says, no, you're not. For whether we're Jew or Gentile, our natural condition is bondage until the age of majority for the human race has arrived. And in 4 to 7, we see that it has arrived in God's action through Christ, the age of a majority has turned up. Verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son. You see, these Judaizers had not got uh, up with the program. I think that's what David Cameron used to call things. They're not sort of up to date. They're not sort of switched on to where we are now. They've been living in the past, in the Old Testament. And they were trying to kind of re-establish it once the new one had already arrived. The age of minority had ended when Jesus Christ entered the world. Why then? Why in those first few decades of what we now call the first century AD? Well, there was the Pax Romana. The Romans have subdued most of the known world, including the area that the Holy Land was in. And as a consequence of that, they could establish both peace and, uh, well, in the sense of absence of war, and they could have an effective infrastructure, a transport network of roads, which was not kind of rivaled until about 1,800 years later. There was a common language, Koine Greek, which was used in commerce, and so many, many people could read and speak that simple version of the language. And that's why, of course, the New Testament was written in it. But it was also a time when people were weary of the old religions. And they were looking for something real and satisfying. But the reason the New Testament gives is that the law had done its work in preparing for the arrival of Christ. It had held them under its tutelage and in its prison so that they longed for the freedom with which Christ would make them free. So what happened when the fullness of time had come? Well, God did two things. Verse 4 and 5, the first one, God sent his Son, and his purpose was to redeem and to adopt us. Not just to rescue us from slavery through redemption, through buying our freedom, but to turn slaves into sons, into the children of God. And this adoption metaphor is drawn from the Greco-Roman world rather than from the Hebrew world, because a wealthy, childless Roman might take into his family a young slave for whom that had hit the jackpot. 
because he would cease to be a slave and would become both a son and an heir. Now we're not told in this passage how that was achieved, but we know from Galatians 1.4 that it was by the death of Christ, and we know from Galatians 3.13 that that death was a curse-bearing death. The emphasis in this passage here is that the one sent to redeem was perfectly qualified to do so. We're told that he was God's son. He was divine. We're told that he was born of a woman, a human mother, so that he was both human and divine. The one and only God-man. So you see the need for the virgin conception, perhaps. And he was born under the law, meaning born of a Jewish mother in a Jewish nation subject to the Jewish law. And throughout his life he submitted to all the requirements of that law and he succeeded where no other person, past or present, has ever been able to do so. He perf perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. So what do we have in Jesus? We have the, his divinity. We have his humanity and we have his righteousness which all uniquely qualified him to be our redeemer. John Stott, who with his usual clarity puts it very helpfully when he writes, if he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. And the second thing that God did was to send his spirit, verse 6. Because you are sons, God, spent, so God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls us Abba, Father. So God sent his son into the world and he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. There's no dividing the Son and the Spirit. And it was a very smart move, if I might humbly congratulate the author, that in the light of Galatians 3.28, where it says there are no racial distinctions, no Jew nor Gentile, the use of the Aramaic Abba, the language that Jesus and Jews spoke, and the Greek pater, their two words for father, merely reinforces that there was one father of all the, di the diverse nationalities which go to make up the people of God. So God not only secured our sonship by his son, but he assured us of it by his spirit, he sent his son that we might have the status of sonship and he sent his spirit that we might have the experience of it. And how does that come about? Well, to quote Stott again, through the affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer, in which we find ourselves assuming an attitude and using a language, not of slaves, but of sons. So, 
and this is very important to note, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit witnessing to our sonship and prompting our prayers is the precious privilege of all God's children. It is because you are sons, verse 6, that God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. No other qualification is needed. There is no need to recite some formula, no need to strive for some special extra experience, no need to find some other condition you must fulfil. If you are God's Son, he has sent his Spirit into your heart. Paul says very clearly that if we are God's children, and because we are God's children, that God has sent his Spirit into our hearts. And the way he assures us is by the quiet, inward witness of the Spirit as we pray. And finally, verse 7. Paul concludes this part of his argument in Galatians. You are no longer a slave but a son. And this change of status is through God. God has made you an heir, he writes. What we are as Christians, as sons and heirs of God, is not through our merit. It's not through our effort, but it is through God. That is the root of liberation. Our way just keeps us trapped in bondage. It is through his initiative of grace who first sent his son to die for us and then sent his spirit to live in us. I'm sure that many of you this evening at nine o'clock will tune in to BBC to see their um, drama production of Les Miserables. The Victor Hugo story uh, is full of insightful Christian truths, so I hope the BBC haven't filleted most of them out. In it, without trying to kind of provide any kind of spoiler, there is an inspector, Javert. He's actually played by a Christian in the, in the drama, I notice. There is Inspector Javert, and he is a prime example of the pharisaical theist. In the musical, he even sings, Mine is the way of the law. Now, he is contrasted to the bishop, who is the personification of grace. When the gendarmes drag Jean Valjean back to the bishop with the silverware that he has pinched, the bishop says to the gendarmes, he's given it to Jean Valjean. It's his. He's given it to them. And that experience of grace changed the life of Jean Valjean, as it can for anyone. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we do pray for any who regard religion as being uh, burdensome, that they sit under law and under condemnation. We know that is sometimes the starting point, but we pray that should anyone be in that state of mind, that they might turn to the offer of Christ for forgiveness, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. <coughs> And in becoming a son or daughter, a child of God, we are liberated from that gloomy, dark world which merely condemns. And we move, we are transformed, we become grown up and live in a way that you intend, in joy and peace and freedom. May we embrace it if we have not, and if we have, may we never drift back into the old ways. Amen.